to be a weird energy today, listeners. I just need to apologize in advance. Uh, I don't know at what point we're going to start like releasing the audio of this, but I'm going to extend our drinking game. Um, so it's going to be every time Bridget says contextual interview and every time that my cat's butt moves through the frame <laughs> of the video. Now that we're on video, people can like really take in the shenanigans of this ridiculous cat. <laughs> <laughs> Your name is Grace Pratt. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I am apparently Grace Pratt, and I'm joined by three of my co-hosts this morning, uh, and we have a great show lined up for you. Um, I'm actually coming to the team with the consult, which is one of my favorite things to do because there are no brighter, more compassionate, and knowledgeable people that I love to strategize problems through than this group right here. But first we are going to start with an icebreaker the way we always do to get to our introductions. And I'm curious to hear because I took my kids last week was spring break in Oklahoma and myself and my seven-year-old and my three, six-year-olds made a nine hour road trip to Colorado to visit some friends in Colorado Springs, some mutual friends of ours and our listeners, our former co-host, Dr. Christine Borst and her family. And the boys are great. They were troopers, but uh, it was a really fun spring break. And I have some uh, you know, f- new favorite spring break memories from that trip. So with apologies to Bridget's spring allergies, my icebreaker question for you is what is a favorite spring break memory that you have? Could be from childhood, could be recently, uh, but what is what are you loving about spring break? Okay, let's okay. move on. Jen, please sure. introduce yourself. Yes. Tell us about spring break. Yeah, all good. All right. Well, hi, I'm Jen Thomas, uh, family medicine. I work at Morris Hospital in Morris, Illinois, integrated care, um, behavioral health director. Spring break memories. I don't know. Like growing up, I grew up in Southern Illinois. We didn't get like a, a real spring break. We had like a day before Easter and the day after. So like that wasn't a thing for me until um, like college. And I was a nerd. So we like didn't, you know, do any like Fort Lauderdale type stuff. <laughs> but um, a couple of years ago, my husband and I took our two oldest kids down to see spring training in Florida. We're um, St. Louis mm-hmm. Cardinal fans. So that was awesome. Like we got to see three games. Um, we hit the, I think it was the Kennedy Space Center. We did like space NASA stuff down in Florida and it was awesome. Um, definitely crocodiles. So I remember that we were taking the little like uh, shuttle out to see the launch pad and there's just like crocodiles hanging out alongside the road. And my oldest was like deathly afraid. So she was like, I'm never gonna live in Florida. <laughs> those crocodiles are just like hanging out on the side of the road like squirrels down there so um but yeah that was super fun we had a, a really good time that is super fun man yeah great. yeah it was good it was good stuff I, Gotta spring do it I love behind the scenes things personally like mm-hmm. give me a director's commentary or yeah. like a behind the scenes of something and I'm so yep. there for it and so the idea of like going to see spring training that's just the very behind the scenes prep is like so yeah. appealing to me oh, even as awesome. a very casual fan of baseball <laughs> yep yep we like totally went all nerdy and we're like autographs and like oh it's the famous ones up close and the kids just loved it it was it was really cool <laughs> well, that's awesome yeah uh so next around the circle here we have Neftali Serrano Hey, everyone. Yes, I'm the CEO here of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. Really nice to be back on the podcast. I feel like it's been a while. So I miss you guys. I miss our audience. So spring break is lots of really good spring break memories. First of all, Grace, I mean, a nine-hour trip 
with those ages, uh, you deserve like a, a an award of some sort, a Nobel Peace Prize. For real. <laughs> and then it con- makes it even worse when I tell you that for some reason, the map took me the long way across the Oklahoma panhandle, oh. which has to be the most boring drive in existence. Yes, I've done that. I've done nope. that. Yes. Oh my goodness. It's so flat. It's unbelievable. No. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, just like, lots of great memories, but one that comes to mind, my oldest daughter, um, who's now in college at the time, I think she was in middle school or, or maybe early, like freshman high school. And we went to, uh, Virginia and I forget the name of the town. It's like, it's like that historic town where, where all the colonial stuff is. Oh, it's Williamsburg, right. Colonial Williamsburg. And, uh, she is such an, just a geek and nerd around like history and things like that. Um, and so even as like, like a, you know, a teen, she wanted to dress up. You have an option. Like when you go in, you can pay extra to like put on colonial clothes and walk around in nice. clothes. And so you can imagine like the white bonnet <laughs> and like the dress and all that. And she was just so into it. Like she loved it so much. The thing was that I had my other two kids with me as well. It was just me and them. My wife was probably working. And the other one who was like a preteen at that point was absolutely mortified that she had to be around her sister who's wearing these, you know, colonial (laughs) costumes. (laughs) So it was just humorous as a parent to see like one kid just having the time of their life geeking out and another one who couldn't walk within 10 feet of Mm -hmm. her sister because, Mm -hmm. you know, she's like the fashionista. Yeah. yeah. Did you partake too with like the costuming, like the Hamilton style with like the high socks and the no, <laughs> long I, I, would, I would have. I would have, but um at that point cheap meat kicked in and I was like, I can't afford like yes. to pay another hundred bucks just to sure. wear a costume. <laughs> so that would have oh, looked gosh. good. You would have you would have rocked it. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh and then next we have Bridget Beachy. Yeah, and uh, I was thinking how we've now changed the YouTube, and when you talk, it's that real up close <laughs> look of. Maybe I should put it further away. But uh, anyway, I woke up with some allergy situation in my eyes, uh, so you guys are, I guess, going to have to deal with that anytime I talk. Um, I'm a psychologist by trade, work as a behavioral health consultant at FQHC. Yeah, spring break. You know, I was racking my mind in high school. Uh, <laughs> spring break was always when track was starting. And growing up in Northeast Ohio in March time, I mean, what you got normally was some type of like freezing rain, sleet, <laughs> yep. ice pellets to your yep. face with yep. wind, uh, you know, you're just running on that track and uh, feeling sorry for yourself. Uh, and I remember that a lot. And I remember thinking like, I've never been on spring. I never went on spring break in uh, high school because always had sports and then I don't know what happened in college I don't think we got very many days mm-hmm. and then we did get in college um, I played basketball that was my main sport uh, and I hadn't played softball uh, since I was a freshman in high school there's a big feud with like the coaches and you kind of almost have to specialize um, I went to a real big high school anyway um, so I just didn't play softball for all those years and I decided in my last year at, at an undergrad that I was going to play softball. And so um, I ended up 
uh, starting a huge chunk of games in left field and uh, played. It was designated player, which was where you bat, but you didn't always play in the field. Nice. So either so I either did that or I played in left field. And we went down to Florida on a bus uh, and did a little. I don't know. That's where we had our first games, and it was just it was really it was really awesome and mm. fun. Awesome. Yes, awesome. I love that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I identify with the track thing. My husband teaches uh, high school and coaches girls track. So every April we're out there, we're in Northern Illinois and it is, you know, nice the day before and sunny the day of the meet. We're out there, you know, end of April and coats and boots and <laughs> gloves freezing and it's, yeah, rain pellets your face. Heck yes. <laughs> That's part of the, <laughs> the grit, I think, of those track athletes. God bless them. <laughs> mm-hmm. So. Well, I want to just share one highlight from our trip to Colorado is that Henry, my oldest, really, the only thing he wanted to do was go on a hike. And um, James was a little worried about that because he didn't think he could work a pickaxe. And so he thought maybe that might not be good for him. But I told him, don't worry, we'll pick a, we'll pick a hike with no pickaxes because giving a six-year-old a pickaxe is not high on my list of priorities as a parent. Uh, so we went to Garden of the Gods and we went on this little hike and immediately Henry started complaining. And I was like, look, man, this is all your idea. So you better get on board. Uh, and then the other funny thing was that we got a little bit further and Alex grabbed his tummy and said, oh, no, I'm mountain sick. And so they just kept us laughing the whole time. Uh, and yeah, it was fun. If you have to make a nine hour road trip with a bunch of little children, I highly recommend driving a minivan and letting them binge watch their favorite show. We watched Pokemon all the way there and back and everyone was happy. So that's yeah. my secret. Minivans where it's at. We have four oh, too. You can't get a minivan van. these days. They're like crazy, um, like off the you know line, and there's such a hot commodity. I'm like, when did the minivan become the cool car? I guess we're all aging. I stuff, love my van. I'm, it's a yes. thing. <laughs> uh, Naftali, are there news and notes for today? Of course, there's always stuff going on here at CFHA. So our spring conference is coming up April 19th through the 20th. It's a conference that's virtual, and it's focused in on helping folks really build their careers. And I think of it as a sort of a a time to meditate on your career. That's the way we're, we're trying to create space for people to just pause and think about what they need to make for a good, satisfying, long career, hopefully, in integrated care. Uh, you can find that information out at integratedcareconference.com. That's integratedcareconference.com. And that's it. Awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, well, I'm going to transition us into our main segment today, and I'm going to start with consult. Um, so unfortunately, usually it can be fun to bring you a story that's happened recently uh, at our clinic or something that's got me thinking about, you know, what might be good for us to talk about, but we had a really difficult situation with a patient, um, earlier this week who came in and for a whole variety of factors, um, and context that sort of come out afterwards was pretty immediately, very angry, very disruptive and pretty violent towards our staff and the resident who was seeing him in clinic that day. And he was, shown out of the clinic. Um, but there were even some rumblings of whether he had made threats when he was being taken out of the clinic. And, um, it's been a heavy situation. It was, it was hard on our staff. It's been hard on our residents. And I think it's hard on our team as a whole. And of course our, our heart is still with the patient and the patient care. 
Um, but and I gave this, uh, I, I may end up retitling the episode, but I gave you guys the heading of angry patients. I think this is a little more nuanced than that, like everything that we end up talking about. But what I'm curious about is, you know, how can we think about what this looks like in integrated care and what it looks like clinically and with you know respect to the team and also how integrated teams may be especially equipped to work in supporting patients who maybe are having this kind of disruption or difficulty. So with that prompt, um, I'm just curious to open up to you guys and see, you know, what immediately flips to the top of thoughts that you have. Well, I think, I think one of the things I, I think of is, is this is actually a, a, a great sort of uh, use case or, or reason for having well-developed teams right? Because if you think about this, I mean, primary care providers deal with angry and or disgruntled patients pretty frequently. I mean, like it's it's not an uncommon thing to have a patient who's at the very least disappointed, um, if not outright angry and hostile at times. Um, and so the burden of that typically is directed at the primary care provider. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that really, uh, can lead to burnout and just lead to just a, a sense of disaffection and a hardening for primary care providers who have to kind of deal with this. We, we dealt a lot with this in the early two thousands during the height of the opioid epidemic, because there were so many patients coming in asking for, uh, pain meds and clinics at that time did not have the kinds of barriers and boundaries and different providers at different boundaries around different things uh, as far as prescribing patterns and all of that. And and then patients under the influence of addiction uh, are, def are definitely prone to more sort of dramatic outbursts, anger, et cetera. And you had so many providers struggling hard around what to do, you know, and um, and it read, I saw it really affect my colleagues. I mean, it, it was just really, really tough, but what was really, was really cool when you have a, a well-integrated team with a member of that team, especially who has skills in the area of like dealing with human affect and, um, understanding sort of context around behavior like that, that person then helps to provide leadership for your team. And when I say team, I'm talking about like including a, your, your receptionist because they're getting angry. They're getting angry patients up there. Your medical assistants, you know, your nurses doing triage on the phone, you know, obviously your providers on the back end, et cetera, right? So you have someone that those folks feel like they can consult right away to kind of you know, strategize, how do we as a team respond to this? Man, that 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 makes a huge difference as opposed to one person who's busy and trying to just like move on to their next patient, having to manage, you know, all of that. Um, and then going home later on that day and feeling crappy about it, right? Because you know that that's, you know, it's a bad experience for you, but you also feel crappy about, you know, the patient. They must be really upset if they they got to that level where they had to be escorted out of a 
kind of a thing. So I think that's the first thing that comes to mind is like, yeah, this is a, exactly a use case for why we need teams and why we need someone on that team who has that kind of expertise. Yeah, I think Grace, you're saying it's nuanced as far as, you know, it sounds like this patient unfortunately got to the point where very aggressive, which makes it definitely more difficult. Because I think for your whole host of, you know, more um, patients who are acting out in some way, maybe with rude comments or kind of escalating behavior, uh, BHCs, we, we actually like the whole clinic does like kind of, um, they'll get put on a behavioral contract, essentially. It's like the um, care coordinators, clinic manager, and then there's always a BHC there. And we offer them BHC services. It's um, trying not to be punitive. It's trying to be very preventative and very proactive. And like, hey, we can imagine um, that you're going through a lot of difficult things, maybe in some cases, chronic pain. And we want to be able to support you because we want to keep you at our clinic as much as possible. We've had so many success stories where folks were able to um, de-escalate situations. They, the patient themselves get de-escalated and now they're able to come to our clinic without, you know, incident. But then sometimes it hits a threshold where it's like, it's falls more into the harassment, the threats and the like straight up like violence. And in those situations, there's less problem solving about what we're going to do in that exact moment. It seems like and more of a support on the back end because it doesn't seem like in some of those situations, if it gets to that point, it kind of is like, uh, there's not really much you can do about it. I mean, I'm sure there are things you can do about it, but it seems like if somebody is getting to a level of like threats, uh, it kind of goes beyond, I think, unless I'm wrong, and then beyond what I think I can really help with. I think that's where there there comes such a, a conflict in principles in terms of we want to we want to treat this patient and like understand the complexity of their situation. And, you know, in this case, this was the patient's very first visit to our clinic and all of it changed within like 10 minutes of him arriving. So, you know, I think the answer to a lot of this and what you were starting to point to Bridget is the relationship and how we're connecting with people and how we're communicating expectations and how we are providing support for those contextual factors that maybe are influencing the behavior and seeing the behavior as a function. But sometimes things change so quickly or things start with such intensity that we have to like see the humanity and protect the people on our team too. And I think that's where it can feel to me like such a conflict of, I want to have so much compassion for this person and their, you know, all of the factors that are leading into their behavior. And also I see my team members who I want so deeply to be safe. And it, you know, it, there was a case in Oklahoma earlier this year of a um, shooting in a healthcare facility um, where a patient came and two doctors were killed. And so I think that that is also, you know, relevant on our minds and feels close to home. And so that piece of we, we need to be safe and we want to be safe in this work. And also there's a lot of unpredictability in our world and larger societal systemic problems. And it's, I, I get left feeling really stuck. It's yeah. tough. It's tough. It's so tough. And, and even when you do make that decision, 
you kind of wonder, was that the right call? Like, had we de-escalated? Would we have gotten to the point where we had to discharge? Could I have handled that, handled it better? I mean, um, a lot of primary care clinics don't have uh, BHCs and we don't have a good mechanism. So like, I think a lot of providers, we go on the defensive. So it's like the minute someone does something that like, you know, violates patient expectations, what card do we have to play besides the discharge card? And then it's right there, your, your adversaries, you're not even thinking about de-escalating and trying to figure out um, something you said, Bridget, last time, like, why does that behavior make sense? Oh my gosh. Like, I wish someone had taught me that years ago of like, ah, okay, that's why that person acted out. It's not about me saying no to the Norco, but it feels that way when someone gets in your face. And I've had people literally get in my face, threaten me to my face. And it didn't go well. It ended up escalating. They're discharged. The police are involved. They get charged with disorderly conduct. And it just turns into this whole traumatic, what the heck are we doing? And maybe it could, maybe it wouldn't have, right? If we had a BHC come in the room and, and help de-escalate, it's like, wow, maybe we could have avoided all that. And it's scary because then you don't know, like, right, was this the right call? Because you know that that person, if we discharge in a small town with access to care and maybe, you know, whatever type of insurance, like, where are they going to go? Their mental health and substance use problems are still there and they still live down the street in this small town. <laughs> so now what? Have we made that person better? Probably not, you know, so it's so hard. It's so hard to feel like you're finding boundaries and you got conflicting, you know, um, a, uh, agendas from your team, right? Well, they can't talk to my team like that. And, and no, we should talk to people respectfully. So it's so hard to find that that balance of like, what's the right call? It's, it's not an easy answer for sure. Yeah, you yeah. painted a great picture there, Jen. Um, I'm glad you gave the color to that because it, it's, it is that visceral sometimes, right? And it is that sort of confusing um, in the way that trauma is often confusing, right? I mean, that's that's the way it is, right? We we have this mix of like, could I have done something like to avoid this trauma, you know, whatever it is. Um, and that that is what it feels like. There's this inner conflict that is really, really, well, I mean, for lack of a better word, is traumatizing. <laughs> like, and, and I think that's another important I think step that clinics need to remember that post these events, like, you know, there should be some outlet or some opportunity for the team to kind of process this because people are going home with that, that feeling of inner conflict, no matter how black and white the situation may have even been. And you still have that second guessing and that questioning because of the extreme of the human behavior. I think the other thing I, I was reacting to when you're talking is I've, I've seen both sides, right? So there's, there's certainly a side where I'm, where I would tout integrated care and having that expert on the team be a big plus for de-escalation. But the other side is, you know, we can't solve every human issue, right? And, and in those cases, what I've found myself doing for our teams is helping our teams feel good about setting the boundary is saying, nope, you know, if you, if you do a good case conceptualization, right, that's what I teach my clinicians always, you're, you've got to have a good understanding of the why of the behavior. And if you understand the why of the behavior and the why of the behavior is something like, um, you know, this person is not in control of their own mental and behavioral faculties. They cannot be reasoned with. They're, you know, then attempting de-escalation techniques is not going to work. If that's your conceptualization, like that, it's not going to work. At that point, you have to go into 
you know, firm boundary and safety setting mode, right? We need to protect our team. We need to protect our patients in this space. And then that's when you have to have really good policies in place to know exactly how to move someone safely out of this space. And, and then for the team to feel like, okay, we did the right thing. Felt yucky, but we did the right thing, right? So I don't want to give people out there the false impression that like, oh, we can solve every problem and de-escalate every single situation. Absolutely not. Right. Plenty of times when you just have to set the good boundary and say, no, this is not acceptable in this environment. I think one thing that I don't know if this is what you said, Bridget, or just something I was thinking based on what you said, but you know, there's a whole spectrum of uncomfortable feelings that can come from patients in terms of, you know, people that are disappointed and then frustrated and then upset and then angry and then hostile. Like that's a wide range. And you were talking, I think what made me think of this is when you were talking about behavioral contracts and having very clear communication of expectations, you know, trying to intervene as early as possible. And I think there's a piece of us, a piece of me for sure, and many of the healthcare providers that I've worked with that in the early stages when the patient's like just a little frustrated or just a little disappointed, you kind of just want to like ignore it and move on with your day because there's so much going on and like probably they're just having a bad day and they'll get over it. And like, maybe if it's a one-off, like maybe that's fine. Maybe we don't need to have, I know I'm a therapist, but I can acknowledge that we don't need to have deep feelings conversations every time and every moment and every encounter. Okay, fine. But when we start to see it being a pattern or when we start to see the first flicker of it escalating, and this is where I talk to our doctors a lot about what's your intuition telling you? Like you need to listen to your gut and listen to is that is something bothering you about this interaction with this patient? And if something's bothering you, that is a sign that you likely need to have a conversation with that patient about that relationship. My favorite word to my supervisees and to our doctors is we've got to meta communicate. We've got to talk about the communication. We've got to talk about the relationship. Because if we just let that go and let that go and let that go, and we can see that they're irritated and they're frustrated and they know that we can see, they know we know, but nobody's talking about it. That's when things start to escalate. And so if there's that nagging feeling in the back of your mind of like, oh, this, I know this patient's really pissed at me because I didn't, whatever. Like, I know many of us are conflict avoidant. I will raise my hand as like the chief among them, but got to deal with it sooner rather than later because it just gets worse. And I think that's where we can have the opportunity to relationally connect and to say like, Hey, let's find our shared goals. Let's find what we're working on together and let's get this out in the open. I can see that you're upset with me. Um, and either that's going to improve the relationship or it's not, but it's going to give you some ideas about a path forward instead of things just like escalating under the surface. Yeah, I mean, I think all this nuance, I, I always say that de-escalation when you're um, somebody who's not a prescriber is a thousand times easier. Like, I don't have conflicts yep. with pa- patients. <laughs> almost, like, almost never. Like, I can't even, uh, a couple of them were, were literally, I had never met the person and I walked in and there was hostility. In those cases, you can't take it personal because there's no relationship. There's not, you know, that, that clearly is not, has nothing to do with you. And so in those cases, you don't take that personal. But as far as, you know, in the clinic, there are folks that have these big behaviors and have them with everybody but me. And 
A, I think it's because I have good de-escalation skills. Um, and B, I'm not a prescriber. So it sucks to be us sometimes. And they're yelling at the nurse because they want the nurse to somehow, they think they can somehow get the, the uh, prescriber to prescribe something. Mm-hmm. And they're frustrated with the prescriber because you're not prescribing me whatever it is that they want. Or there's this referral that they want. There's some type of thing that they want. I think as a BHC, they know that we can't give them anything. <laughs> tangible, in some ways, we have little tangible. to offer. And that can work in our favor. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, there's like, I'm, and, and it's funny because if they do think that I can get them something, it's, they're, they're super nice to me. So in most mm-hmm. cases, I feel bad because I'm always like, oh, I talked to so-and-so and it went really great, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, they just called yesterday and yelled at us. Like, we're going to have to discharge them. And I'm like, no, don't discharge them. Like, they're super so, nice. They're super nice. So um, one of the things over the years I've learned is like, again, what is the co- context? What is the function of the behavior? And just because I'm not seeing it, even though I do think I do well with de-escalation strategies, it might not be happening because my context doesn't produce that. They, I, there's nothing that they're going to try to get from me. And if they do, they're normally really nice to me because they want me to go talk to the physician about it. I don't know why they're so mean to nurses then if it's that same logic, but who knows? So that's just something that I, when I talk to residents as part of like the faculty and teaching is like, you do have to understand that some of this is not that, uh, you know, Jen, right? it's not personal. There's a prescription mm. pad, there's a referral, there's some other thing. There's a, there's a letter that they want. There's something that they want. And so it's not personal mm. and that's easy to say. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to feel and really know. So no. we just talk about that. Yeah. And that's why I think that having the BHC, like that's, I mean, I'm extremely ill-equipped leaving formal training <laughs> and like having this, okay, it's not about you. It's not personal. And and I mean, shoot, even formal de-escalation. I don't know if I've ever had de-escalation training. I probably have, but I did, forgot it. And it was on some computer module 10 years ago. You know what I mean? So it's like, we need more of that. I We collectively, the medical providers, because yeah, we're, I don't know. I just feel like we walk into that all the time and you do feel like it's me versus you and I'm the barrier to you getting your script. So you'll, you know, roll over me with, you know, manipulation or intimidation or, you know, and and that feels awful. And you go home with that and then you're like, well, I don't want to go back and do that tomorrow. Or I see you on my schedule next week. And I'm like, oh, you know, and, and I think we set our providers up to have avoidant behavior. I know we do because we're on the time crunch fee for service widget making. So it's like, yeah, what, it's what's a heck of a lot easier, right? What's the code <laughs> for? I had to talk to the patient about the doctor patient relationship to resolve yeah. these lingering resentments. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What, what Here's the time-based code for why benzos are not a good idea for you. Yeah. <laughs> just start the clock. I mean, it it's easier just to go, Refill. Well, and it speaking, is, it is. Yes. And speaking of billion payment models, I, I think that this is when we talk about the, um, the less tangible benefits of integration and BHCs. I mean, it, when if you're talking about the toll this takes on you as a provider, and I think a lot of times the therapist on the, t- I, I, I heard this um, from so many people when the program that I work through or work through has been through some major traumas, long time listeners will remember. Um, but I got some advice that, uh, the therapist on the program is going to become the therapist for the program. So like, be ready for that. And of course we have to maintain our boundaries, but like we, a lot of times are going to be the one to be like, Hey, 
that was a really traumatic thing that happened to you. How are you doing? And just checking in and thinking about, and I think it's the importance of believing each other on our teams. Like you were saying, Bridget, when you have a really different experience with a patient, you know, we want in our team dynamics to be coming to each other with like understanding and like trust and not to be like, well, I've never had that experience with that patient. So I think they're fine. Um, because that could be a big problem that, I mean, that will really erode the dynamics on your team. Especially, especially if you have a borderline patient who's really good at splitting, right? Oh my gosh. Yes. Like that's part of the whole deal. (laughs) Like that, you know, the fact that you didn't have that experience is part of the problem. Um, but I think that we like the time that we spend nurturing our teams and taking care of our teams is not time that gets, you know, put in a spreadsheet of how we're, you know, billing for our salary or whatever, but it being able to have strong interdisciplinary teams. And of course the BHC is not the only one that can take care of each other, but having these good teams and having attention to how we're taking care of each other, how we're looking out for each other, such a crucial part of what we need to be doing. I, I think I think personally, it's actually to me, it's the biggest impact of integrated care. Period. And a story. I, I know we're about patients and we're about patient care, but I think when we look back historically at what the collective impact of integrated care of, of embedding behavioral health um, specialists and onto teams. What's the biggest overall impact? I think it's actually on the, on the providers and the team functioning. Yeah. Right. And then the team's ability to to care more effectively for patients that way. Mm-hmm. Right. I, mm-hmm. I'm a huge believer in that. And I, I think going back to something you said, um, Grace, I think there's been so many times when I've had, you know, you don't have to have like a therapy session with a teammate to be helpful. Like, there's so many times where I've had just these side conversations, you know, in the provider room, in the hallway outside the exam room, where I could visibly see the provider relax after we just took three minutes to debrief what happened with that patient. I can help provide some context, maybe, that really helps frame the whole story in a different way that depersonalizes it as, as Bridget said for the, for the provider and the provider can then just breathe and get on to their next patient and know that, that they're, they're going to be okay. They, they're not alone in it. They don't have to take yeah. that baggage with them. It, it's a huge thing. And then there's also like sort of upskilling, right? Because we share skills. I learned from my providers, providers learn from me. Yes. And that whole notion of, um, you know, saying what you said, Bridget, and 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 also Grace, and the avoidance thing, and um, that's one of the things that keeps me because I I do, I am naturally, especially as a Hispanic, uh, conflict avoidant in, in those types of interpersonal relationships. But like, what keeps me from being more conflict avoidant is my teammates, because I know if I don't help address these meta communication issues that you were talking about, Grace, um, that's going to hurt my teammate. My teammate's going to have to have this conversation or deal with the stress and conflict of this. So I need to be courageous and bring it up. I see that you're frustrated because your provider didn't prescribe the benzo. Tell me about why you're frustrated. You know, taking the time to, to, to have that conversation means that my teammate 
uh, either doesn't have to have that conversation or doesn't have to be the first person to broach that conversation. I can break ground on that and mitigate some of that frustration and anger and irritability. And I can put a different context on why we're not prescribing the benzel and why that's not good care, right? Right. Um, and so that really, it, it just helps position me differently because I naturally do want to avoid those conversations. They're uncomfortable. They're mm-hmm. hard. I hate disappointing people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'll no, do that's... it for my teammate. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. We, and we need, we need to feel like we're not alone. You know, I think of practices where we don't have integration, but we're historically, I used to practice and like, oh my gosh, there's so many providers out there that don't have that safety net of someone to bounce it off of. And they feel so isolated and it's a fix it profession. So it's either, you know, someone gets mad and disappointed at you or you hit refill and it's like, there's gotta be better options there. Right. <laughs> yeah. There's gotta be. <laughs> well, and you mentioned trauma earlier, Naftali, anything when we're talking about this broader umbrella of burnout, compassion fatigue, secondary traumatic stress, and then workplace trauma, the trauma of being um, a provider in some cases when you are um, coming against problems that you can't fix all the time, or sometimes a directly hostile situation or a threat, um, that can be trauma. And so that's not secondary trauma, that's your own trauma. And we don't like to claim it always, um, especially as, uh, you know, high functioning healthcare providers. We're like, oh no, not me, never me. Right. Uh, <laughs> but we need to acknowledge it. And I loved what you said about debriefing because that is, you know, the most immediate first thing that we can do for someone who's experienced a potentially traumatic stressor is to connect, to debrief, to help them ground themselves for a second and reassure their safety. And I think that that is such a key part of, you know, for any of our team members, no matter who you are, on the team, if you can look out for each other and provide that momentary connection um, and, you know, ensuring their safety and support, that's huge. Of course, huge plug for the contextual interview. Uh, that, <laughs> you know, I saw we were running out of time, you know, so we got to get, we gotta get that. Gotta get in. In. <laughs> but when we, when we, when we take that, uh, this contextual approach with our patients, just in general, wanting to get to know them, it can it can really, you know, the conceptualization that Neftali was talking about and the depersonalization that we've been talking about, it's so much easier to do when you have these pieces of information and you're not trying to fill them in. You know that person is dealing with X, Y, and Z. We know that they're at the end of their rope because of those reasons. And then maybe we're like the first person that they saw, or they think that there's some type of thing that we're withholding from, you know, as a healthcare system for what that, for what they feel they need. And that, and it's so much easier to depersonalize it, not feel like, oh, well, this is against me when you know all those factors. When you don't know those factors and someone's like yelling at you, it's, you know, your instincts get, uh, you know, they, they kick in. So I think that, and de-escalation strategies are so helpful. We, we, we do talk about other people's traumas during, like, I'll, um, I've done de-escalation courses a lot. And we're talking about what people are walking in with all kinds of things that we don't even know about. and those can go a long way because I've seen, I've, I've been a part of conversations where I've, you know, seen how things have gone on. And I know that if the healthcare provider, and I'm not trying to blame anybody, but I know that if they would have used different words, like we would have been okay. Or maybe I step in, we use different words, then we're completely okay. 
So it's this, I guess yep. what I'm saying is there's this huge and in the spectrum that we were talking about. Like there's some situations where somebody, it's a one-off and we don't even know this person and we don't know what they're going through. And there's nothing that we could have ever done. Like Neptali is saying, it just doesn't exist in healthcare. It was going to happen anyways. And then there's these scenarios that we let go. Whereas if we would have had a conversation about the communication, we could have avoided. And then there's these like middle ones where if we could have t- taken a f- different, you know, steps. And then maybe that is contextually impacted by whoever's talking to them. Maybe it's easier for me because I don't have a, a, a prescription pad. And so maybe we send me in first, like Neftali saying, to break the ground on the conversation. So by the time that they do talk to uh, Jen, who's a prescriber, um, then it's an easier conversation. So it's a huge, huge. And I agree with Neftali and what you guys all said, that there's sometimes there's just nothing that could be done. And then sometimes I've seen healthcare systems say oh there's nothing that could been done i'm like well um actually i think there was probably a lot that could have been done and we just don't want to like lean into and learn new skills because it's hard and everyone's busy so um all the grace and compassion though because we're all just trying to survive out here and i i think i think it's important also to recognize that that we're not saying that de-escalation means everybody's happy Right. I mean, like, you know, at a baseline, de-escalation is just we talked about the issues. People on both sides felt heard on some level. And that's and we were able to leave on some form of of some some peaceful state. Right. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that's part of it is is just we we do feel a lot of discomfort in healthcare because we're a caring profession of disappointing people and people being frustrated. People have a right to be frustrated on, on both sides. So us as the care team, we can be frustrated. Patients allowed to be frustrated. Patients allowed to not like your decision or your decision-making. Um, so that's okay, right? So a lot of those middle ones, I think, sometimes we think we failed in, in those middle cases that we're talking about um, because the, the patient's still upset. Like, no, like that's, that's just, that's, mm, that's, that's relationship, that's yeah. right? Uh, that relationships, especially real relationships, like actually intimate relationships, we know from the science have to incorporate some conflict. You know, it's like any good movie. You have to have a conflict mm-hmm. that gets resolved mm-hmm. at some point. If you actually don't have any conflict, you don't have any real intimacy. Mm-hmm. So that's an that's a function of it. You just have to learn how to hold that tension mm-hmm. in the relationship. And so I would say maybe a, a good, a successful de-escalation is, it could be, we don't agree. Uh, we are upset. And we're still in relationship. Mm-hmm. That that's a successful de-escalation. Like we we the patient's mm-hmm. still gonna come back and 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 work with us. They may not like us, but mm-hmm. you know, we work through it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so wise. Yeah. I mean the competing um agendas as the provider too, like that makes so much sense. And then you got your other angel devil on your shoulder going, what about satisfaction scores? Are they oh. going to rate you excellent? And you're like, wait a minute, they're not supposed to rate me excellent. We just had a de-escalation. We're disagreeing. We're going to live to fight another day. They're going to come back. Maybe it's just an okay and you get an average score. Well, that's not good enough. That's going to hurt your 
productivity and your financial, right? Because there is a finance for, for a lot of providers. It's a patient satisfaction as part of your compensation. So well, how do you oh. serve that master? <laughs> ah, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a horrible, that's, that's just a horrible way to define healthcare. Yep. <laughs> yep. a, <laughs> yeah, there's so many unintended consequences yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I was struck by when you were talking to Tully that you're talking about boundary work and the boundary work that we need to be doing in terms of our patients' emotions and reactions are theirs to feel. And sometimes we want to, sometimes it, I think more often than worrying about satisfaction and worrying about, you know, like that, those are factors for sure. But I know that you're worried about making your patient have a good experience, making sure that they are taken care of. And sometimes again, the people pleasing conflict avoidant part of us feels like that means everybody's happy, but not everybody's going to be happy and people are going to hurt and they're going to hurt physically and they're going to hurt emotionally and they're going to have pain and they're going to have feelings and they're theirs and they're, we have to let them hold that. And then we have to hold our own and acknowledge our own and figuring out where that space is. And that's so hard to do, (laughs) but I I think having those emotional boundaries are the only way that we can be sustainable in these roles. I found that being a very, very tangible strategy is being willing to say that we don't know, or as a field that we messed up, we did something wrong, you know, for folks that are like, Oh, I was prescribed this for 20 years and now it's been changed on me to really lean into that and be like, that sounds terrible to you were told to take this thing because it was going to be good. It was supposed to help you. And now the very system who gave that to you is now saying that we can't. And so really like, I know we get scared of that. And I, I've, I've talked to some of our physicians and our residents over the years about just admitting, just owning that we as healthcare didn't know and that we are in a, um, a fallible system and we don't have something for that. And really just putting it out on the table of just like, what you're asking for, I don't even disagree with you. Like, I don't disagree with you, but we don't have something for that. Or the rules changed. We mm-hmm. thought it was good. We got more research. Mm-hmm. It's now it's not. And I cannot with my license. Like, I, like, I don't even, and even admitting, like, I don't know what it feels like to be in your situation, but based on everything we've gone over, that sounds horrible that you were placed into the situation. Yes. And if I could fix it, my God, I would. But things changed. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then I blame society. I say, you know, you sh- see all these shows where the healthcare system has it all together and have all the <laughs> it's all answers. perfect. And <laughs> Wrap it up in 60 is, minutes. <laughs> yeah. And I said, the truth of the matter is it's like a sausage factory. Like, yep. you know, we don't like we're doing the best that we can and we're trying the best that we can. But sometimes it's not great. and We don't have clear answers. And there was mistakes or misinformation or who even knows what. And the patient, as you got caught in the middle of it. Yep. And um, I'm just sorry that that happened. And most yeah. of the time. Smart. I love it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> this has been such a good conversation and so much to think about. And it is definitely running my mind through in terms of some of the takeaway points that we've talked about, like taking care of each other, having clear plan in place for a clinic, uh, for a team when problems happen doing our own emotional boundary work, focusing on the relationship and intervening with patients early when we can, 
recognizing what's ours to hold versus what is our patients to hold and just the importance and the really unique opportunity that we have as integrated care teams to, to do this work and to take care of our patients and ourselves. So I appreciate you guys so much as always. I'm thankful for this conversation. Um, let's go to our ending from Deepu. For our closing for this month, it is a verse from the large poem called The Prophet from Khalil Gibran. Here it goes. Then a woman said, Speak to us of joy and sorrow. And he answered, Your joy is your sorrow unmasked, and the selfsame well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Is not the cup that holds your wine the very cup that was burned in the potter's oven? And is not the lute that soothes your spirit the very wood that was hollowed with knives? When you are joyous, look deep into your heart and you shall find it is only that which has given you sorrow that is giving you joy. When you are sorrowful, look again in your heart, and you shall see that in truth you are weeping for that which has been your delight. Some of you say joy is greater than sorrow, and others say nay, sorrow is the greater. But I say unto you they are inseparable, Together they come, and when one sits alone with you at your board, remember that the other is asleep upon your bed. Verily, you are suspended like scales between your sorrow and your joy. Only when you are empty are you at standstill and balanced. When the treasure keeper lifts you to weigh his gold and his silver, needs must your joy or your sorrow rise or fall. Thank you. Thank you, Deepu. Thank you, Jen and Bridget and Naftali. Thank you to all of our listeners. And we'll talk to you again next month. 